Sorry about that. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 24. You might wonder why we didn't have a, a scripture reading today. Uh, our Bible class was our scripture reading. Normally, I, I don't preach and teach on the, the, the same thing in, in one day, but uh, there, there's so much in Matthew 24. I, I know we're not going to have enough time, even in a couple classes, to cover all of it. Um, I thought it would be helpful to kind of dive in and make some more specific application of, of one of the passages that we, we covered in our class today. We're going to be looking at Matthew 24, verse 9 through 13. And as we've seen in, in the, the context here in our Bible class, Jesus is talking about what he calls the birth pangs that his people are going to be experiencing as the destruction of Jerusalem draws near and as they await God's deliverance uh, and the consummation of his spiritual kingdom. And so he talks about uh, much of these disasters going on around them as birth pangs leading up uh, through verse 8. And then in verse 9, he talks about how his people specifically are going to be affected by a lot of what's going on, how they're going to be persecuted. If you want to look with me, starting in verse 9, it says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, um, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. We, we mentioned briefly in our Bible class how this idea of, of birth pangs that he refers to there in verse 8 um, is used in Romans 8 in verse 22 to describe the, the suffering that the world experiences from the beginning of time until now. Um, that, that every time of crisis, every suffering, every persecution that we go through are, are ultimately can be referred to as these birth pangs leading up into the time that we experience our, our final consummation of, of uh, God's kingdom and deliverance and eternity. And so while the, the contractions, the, the, the birth pangs that the Jewish Christians were experiencing at this time, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, may be different than the birth pangs that we are experiencing now, that the principles of how we handle this and how this is going to affect us apply just as much to us today as it did to them then. And Jesus here in verse 10 through 12 talks about three different minis, many that will fall away, many that will be led astray, many whose love will grow cold. And so I want us to think about that for a little bit today. Um, three primary ways that his disciples might fail to endure, and we read there in verse 13 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so I hope by taking some time to consider these dangers to our spiritual lives, we as well can take heed uh, that we will endure to the end uh, and not um, be part of that broad way that leads to destruction uh, by any of these three paths leading away from Christ that, that Jesus mentions here. First of all, in verse 10, Jesus says that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. The, the, the word fall away here literally means to, to be ensnared or entrapped or, or to be made to trip or stumble. But here it describes one who completely turns their back on the Lord, who, who ultimately joins the opposition 
against them. You, you notice the language there. It says, and the many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is, in fact, what was said of their persecutors in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up. That word deliver up is the same word translated betray in the next verse. Um, and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Here, those who are falling away are joining those who are persecuting Christians. They are betraying. They are delivering up. They, they are hating. Uh, we see later on in Matthew 26, in verse 31 through 34, that Jesus warns his disciples that, that they are going to fall away in what's coming up with his crucifixion. Starting in verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What, what does it mean to, to fall away there? It's to forsake, to desert Jesus, uh, to deny even Jesus, uh, to turn their back on him and their back on, on those who continue to serve him. And again, it's in the context of persecution, of, of fear that they are, are fearing for their own lives, that they are uh, tempted to, to fall away, to leave Jesus in that situation. Again, in the context of persecution, we also see this idea in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, remember the, the rocky soil. When Jesus describes that rocky soil in Matthew 13, verse 20 and 21, he says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, there is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So there again, when persecution comes, when opposition comes, when my service to Christ isn't what I thought it was going to be, then I can very quickly kind of do that 180 turn. And we're warned that there are going to be people who are going to abandon the Lord, who are going to leave him behind, who are going to cease to serve him, and in fact, join the opposition against him. What causes that? How can we guard against that? Well, I, I think we, we see from the parable of the sower there in Matthew 13, uh, part of the problem is that serving Christ isn't what I expected it to be. Right? When I receive the word, you know, and the sun is out and, and the air is nice and moist, well, then I accept it with joy. But when the drought comes, I, I've not allowed God's word to take proper root within myself, my my commitment may be to a certain set of circumstances rather than genuinely a commitment to Christ. And when those circumstances change, my shallow faith quickly abandons the word because it hasn't given me what I was looking for. Is that us? I, I think that's kind of what happens with the disciples there when uh, they forsake Jesus, when they fall away, uh, when he is betrayed and taken to be crucified. They had their picture of what serving Christ was going to look like. And in their minds, they, they were even ready to die with the Lord. Peter says that, that even if I have to die for you. But we see that Peter's picture of what it was going to be to die for the Lord was him kind of dying in honor 
uh, fighting to the end, defending Jesus, and when Jesus tells him to put away his sword. When Peter recognizes that dying with Jesus is not dying some honorable death, but is being rejected and ridiculed, uh, then they fall away. And so, how do we overcome that? Well, I think Matthew 13 tells us we need to develop deep roots within us. Our commitment needs not to be to a certain picture of what the Christian life is going to look like. To, to what, what I'm going to get from Jesus. My commitment needs to be to Jesus himself. I need to be firmly grounded in service to him and not just to what he gives me. I, I think there's an interesting uh, parallel in Hebrews chapter 6. I think it would be a, a good commentary on this idea. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about the concept of falling away. It does use a different Greek term that, that might more properly be translated to apostatize. Um, but I think it, it gives us very similar concepts here. If you want to read with me in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to rescue, uh, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receiving a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That's a pretty serious passage, isn't it? Uh, it says that there is one who, if they have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. I, I want you to notice for a moment what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that it's impossible for them to be forgiven. It's not a limitation put on God's mercy here. It's a limitation on the pliability of the human heart. That there comes a point where the heart can become so hardened that it will not be restored unto repentance. It's not that God will refuse to forgive it. It's that it will not return to him. But you notice uh, in, in the context here, how, how did the heart get there? How can a heart become so hardened that it will not be restored to repentance. You notice here how much focus he puts on what was received. Starting in verse 4, he says, The one who has been enlightened, who has tasted the heavenly gift, who has shared in the Holy Spirit, who has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Later on, using the illustration of the field, he talks about it drinking the rain in day after day. Here, the reason that this heart can become so hardened to the point that it will not respond is because it has received all of this from the Lord and it hasn't let it sunk in. And if, if we're not going to respond to that, then there, there's nothing more. God has given us the fullness of his grace and if we have tasted it and then yet still reject it, our heart has become so hardened to where it is not going to respond. And so when we think about how we avoid that, how do we avoid falling away? Well, we allow what God has given us to, to take deep root. 
that rain that is coming down of his spiritual blessings upon it, we drink it in and we drink it deeply. We uh, allow the, the light of his truth to, to, uh, to shine upon us. We bask in the light of his truth. We uh, savor the, the taste of his word and the sweetness of his heavenly gift. We, we cultivate his spirit within us, allowing it to bear its rich fruit in our lives. That's how we take deep root. And if we have drunk so deeply in what God has given us, in the fellowship, in, in the hope, in the joy that he can provide, then it doesn't matter what comes. It doesn't matter what, what drought, what hardship, what storm. He is going to give us the, the strength, the deep roots, that we can stand firm through it. And so many will fall away. But let that not be us. Let's allow what God has given us to take deep root within us. That whatever circumstances arise, our commitment to him is not based on circumstances. Our commitment to him is based on who he is and what he has given us on a, on a spiritual level. But back in Matthew chapter 24, we see not only will many fall away, if you look then in verse 11, it says, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This is something slightly different. These are not people who are necessarily outwardly turning their back on the Lord, who are going to, to hate and betray those who follow Christ. These are those who, who claim to still follow Christ, but are being led astray by false teaching, by false prophets, uh, or false doctrine. And Jesus actually warns about this multiple times in Matthew 24. We noticed the very first thing Jesus says in response to their question in Matthew 24 and verse 4 is, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Later on, he warns of this again, starting in verse 23 of Matthew 24. Verse 23 says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise before great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. So Jesus warns them more than once, especially as they're going through this time of persecution. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to provide false hope. A lot of people are going to come in and, and give you some good news that is not my good news, that is their good news. Uh, and we need to be aware. We need to be ready. Jesus is warning us in advance that when it comes, we will not be led astray. I think many times when we, when we hear phrases like false teaching or false doctrine or even people talking about sound doctrine and sound churches, sometimes we immediately think of, uh, you know, kind of the, the arrogant and aggressive and dogmatic attitudes of those who, who are more interested in being warriors for the truth than, than reaching out in, in love with the gospel. But Jesus talks a lot about false teaching. Jesus has a whole lot to say about false doctrine. Um, and so we need not to think that a concern for false teaching and a concern for false doctrine is automatically just some dogmatic and arrogant and divisive attitude. No, if we're following Jesus, we need to be concerned about false teaching. 
We need to be very concerned about it because he warns against it time and time again. And sometimes not wanting to be arrogant and not wanting to be dogmatic, we, we can go to the opposite extreme of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as Ephesians chapter 4 talks about. We need to be firmly rooted in sound doctrine. We need to beware of false teaching. Because Jesus warns against it time and time again, and he says here that many will be led astray. Many will not experience God's salvation because they are being led astray by a counterfeit gospel. That's serious. And that's something that we need to take seriously. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Remember in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, Jesus warns us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets and false teachers are not just going to be, you know, the, the nutcases that only the, the really gullible people are going to fall. They're going to be subtle, we're told. They're going to, to look good and commendable, something praiseworthy from, from a human perspective. And so Jesus warns us that we need to be very careful about inspecting their fruit and comparing it to the, the seed of his word. And in verse 21, he follows this up by saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brethren, this doesn't describe the fate of a few people. This describes the fate of many people were told. Many will call him Lord, Lord. Many will claim to be servants of Christ. And not only that, they'll be busy in religious activities. They're going to say, did we not do this? And do we not do that? But Jesus warns, if we're truly going to endure to the end and experience his salvation, it's going to be because we were pursuing the Father's will. Because we were, in fact, uh, seeking not our own idea of what God wants, but what God has told us he wants. That should scare us. That should motivate us all the more to go back to God's word. How do we overcome that? How do we make sure that, that, that I am not led astray? Well, it means that I need to become familiar with the Father's will. That's what Jesus says here, that it's the one who does the Father. His will that is going to be received into that eternal reward. The, the one who is not just focused on, uh, you know, doing my own conception of what, what is, is religious and what is spiritual and what's going to bring glory to God, but is genuinely listening to what God has to say, that is comparing the fruit of others' teaching with the seed of God's word. And so we need to become familiar with the real thing so that anything counterfeit becomes obvious in comparison. Look for a moment in Acts chapter 20. Um, in Acts chapter 20, we see another warning against the influences of false teaching. We really see those type of warnings in most every book of our New Testament. Uh, but in Acts chapter 20, and in verse 28, here as Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus, 
He tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which, um, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Notice what he then says in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How are they going to stand firm against these wolves that are going to come in, even among them very, the, their very selves, wearing sheep's clothing that are going to tear the, this flock apart? Well, he tells them you, you need to be ready. You need to be aware. Okay, well, well, how are we going to be ready? How are we going to be aware? How, how are we going to identify this and how are we going to handle it? Well, Paul's not going to be there. Paul's not going to be there to, to point it out to them. He says in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. You're going to have a rocky road ahead, but, but you know what you need more than anything to weather the storm ahead of you. You need God and his word. Cling close to him. Get to know what, what his will is in your life. And you'll be prepared to handle whatever it is that the devil throws at you. And so I think, brethren, we, we need the same. We need not to take lightly the, the threat of false teaching. Jesus doesn't. The Bible warns us time and time again. Uh, and so we, we need to think seriously about digging in to God's revealed will within the scriptures, to become familiar with what his will is, that we might not be led astray, that we might not be among those who call Lord, Lord, and yet are cast out of Jesus' presence. But back in Matthew chapter 24, um, not only do we see people turning their back on the Lord, not only do we see people being led away into false doctrine, in verse 12 it says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I may never turn my back on the Lord. I, I may never be led into false teaching, but perhaps most dangerous of all, I might just slowly lose my fire for the Lord. I'll continue to go through all the right motions and say all the right things, but my heart may slowly drift away from him. Earlier in the context of Matthew, Matthew 22, while Jesus is talking to the, the scribes and Pharisees, and he's asked what the greatest commandment in the law is. Remember, he said there in verse 37 of Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Brother, I can be doing everything else right. I, I can go in through all the right motions, checking all the boxes. Um, but if I fail to first love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, then it doesn't matter what motions I'm going through. That is the foundation. That is what, what it's all about. What everything else grows out of. 
And so Satan doesn't have to get me to deny the Lord. Satan doesn't have to get me to, to leave the Lord. He just has to get me to kind of slowly forget about the Lord. To become comfortable with where I'm at, going through the motions with no real thought to who it is that I'm serving and why. And, and we see this happening um, in times of persecution, uh, especially in the book of Revelation. Um, Perhaps the, the physical persecution that the Christians were going through in the time of Revelation is part of what uh, Jesus was speaking of when he talks about the, the, the great tribulation that, that his people are going to suffer. And here in Revelation chapter 2, you notice what he says to the church in Ephesus. Starting in verse 1 of Revelation 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, you just read verse 1 through 3, and that sounds pretty good. They, they haven't, even under persecution, they haven't denied the Lord. They haven't turned away from them. They are enduring. And on top of that, when there were those who came in with false teaching, claiming to be apostles, they identified them as such. Uh, they, they followed the warning of Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he was talking to those Ephesian elders. And they've handled this false doctrine. And yet, verse 4, they've grown cold in their love. They had left the love that they had at first. You might think of this like a, a married couple who has the honeymoon phase. And at the, the beginning, they were just so... Uh, in awe that they get to spend life together. And they're excited to come home to one another. They enjoy spending time together and talking with each other. Um, they just see it as, as a privilege to, to share the same home. They're, they're over the moon about one another. But as life continues, uh, they, they work through life together, but they kind of lose that infatuation with one another. Uh, and they never fully rekindle it. They start living with one another more out of responsibility than out of love. Is that our relationship with the Lord? God wants us to be over the moon about him. God wants us to be in love with him. God wants us to be in awe of the fact that we get to have a relationship with him. And yet, as time goes on, as we see the wickedness of the world around us, we, we may begin to grow cold in that love. And we'll continue to go through the motions because we know we're supposed to. We'll try to continue to do all the right things, but we, we've lost our zeal and our fire for the Lord. And it needs to be rekindled. What needs to change? Well, look there in verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. We, we need to remember how in awe we were, at least should have been, of the fact that we get to have a relationship with God. 
We need to rekindle that feeling that we had at first and do the first works, just like a, a married couple in the beginning as they're dating, they're courting one another, they're trying to show their love and express their love to one another. We need to go back and do those first works. We need to do that with the Lord. It's interesting that at the end of this section in Revelation, he addresses another church that ultimately has the same problem, kind of stated in a slightly different way. The church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, we see in verse 15, he says to them, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and have prospered and I need nothing but real, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What was the problem in Laodicea? It's uh, maybe slightly different, but the same general problem, that they had lost their fire for the Lord. And he says that they had grown lukewarm, that they had been growing colder, but not cold enough to where they recognized their spiritual poverty, where they recognized their need for the Lord. They got comfortable with where they were, and they thought that, you know, putting in the work to kind of stir back up that zeal and that love for the Lord just seemed kind of unnecessary at this point. They, they were good with where they were. Well, what's Jesus's response to them? He says, you don't get it. Lukewarm is not better than cold. In fact, lukewarm is worse than cold. I, it makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. And so how do we handle this? How do we overcome growing cold in our love to the Lord? We remember from where we have fallen. And we need a wake-up call to recognize that my autopilot faith is not enough. That me just kind of going through the motions and, you know, checking my boxes in service to the Lord is not what God seeks from me. What God wants from me is to be on fire for him. He wants me to rekindle that love, to be in awe of the relationship that I'm able to have with him. I need to recognize that if I am just kind of drifting along, that in reality I'm wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And yet God wants to clothe me. God wants to open my eyes. God wants to strengthen me to serve him with zeal once again. If I don't reignite my zeal for him, then I am no better than the one who falls away. I'm no better than the one who is led astray. Um, if I grow cold in my love for him, then my fate is still the same. I'm on that broad way leading to destruction. And so Matthew 24 and verse 13 tells us that salvation is ultimately to the one who endures says there in verse 13 and 14, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He says, in this gospel, part of the gospel 
uh, is that the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel not only must be accepted and received, the gospel must be obeyed. The gospel must be followed. The gospel must be clung to that by God's grace, we might be able to to cross that finish line and and lay our our cross at his feet and receive a a crown of life. Revelation 2 and verse 10, the church in Smyrna has said, told be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. You know, it's still God's gift. Uh, the, the one who endures to the end has not achieved his salvation. That's not what we read here. The one who endures to the end receives God's gift of salvation. Uh, there, there is a great responsibility that God has called us to, but as we saw earlier, it's he who sends the rain. It's he who planted the seed. It is he who has provided everything that we might grow, that we might be this tree planted by the waters. It's not our own strength. And yet God requires that we respond that we obey, that we follow, that we cling to the gospel. The Christian life is not a cakewalk. It's not a sprint either. It's a marathon. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're told that we need to run with endurance the race set before us. And yet we're told that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus himself has run this race before us, and in fact, he has won the prize. Uh, we're, we're too late to be the ones who win the prize. But in his grace, he'll share the prize with us. And he has paved the way for us that if we will follow in his steps, we can share that, that crown of victory, that crown of life. Um, and so what about us? Jesus has warned us against many paths that do not lead to him. In Matthew 7, he calls this the broad way that leads to destruction. Which one describes me today? Many will fall away. Many will turn their backs on the Lord. Many will be led astray by false teaching. Many will grow cold in their love for the Lord, will become lackadaisical in their service to him. But Jesus doesn't tell us that to discourage us. He tells us that to motivate us, to motivate us all the more to strive diligently to cling to him, to be committed to him. Because he will give us the strength and endurance that we need. What about you today? Do you need to commit your life to the Lord? Have you been living for self, for the world? Um, That path leads to destruction. But Jesus has paved a way that if you're willing to put your old life behind you, to bury it in the waters of baptism, you can be raised to have a new life that has a promise of eternity in God's presence. And if you've made that commitment, but you have been growing cold, you haven't been serving the Lord faithfully, uh, he is there to receive you back. Um, If you need the the prayers of the brethren, if there's any way that we can help you in your service of the Lord, that's why we're here. So I hope that we'll all take seriously Jesus' warnings. Um, that we'll, we'll not think just because we're sitting here in these chairs that, well, that means that, that we, we're, we're doing good. Well, no, Jesus has a much more serious warning for us. And so let's let God's work do its work within us. Uh, let's be motivated to cling all the closer to him.
If there's anyone that, that we can help and encourage in any way, if you need to bring anything before these brethren, we want to offer you that opportunity now. Um, at this time, Jason will lead us in a song.